Motivation and inspiration are powerful tools that change and influence perspectives, voices, and projects that shape the world. With all the negativity in the world, it can be hard to find those rare and beautiful stories that tell of inspired spiritual activism and individual healing journeys. Walk the path with me, Dr. Trish DeRocher, on the show Heart, Change, Consciousness, where we inspire listeners to take action towards a more just world. We'll hear from authors, change makers, influencers, activists, poets, filmmakers, and cultural workers who practice inspired spiritual activism and transform vulnerabilities into sources of strength. Heart Change Consciousness allows us to understand the world from different perspectives and highlights what is possible when we are fearless and open ourselves to our soul purpose and engage each other across boundaries. So let's self-heal and open the path to self-sovereignty. Heart Change Consciousness begins now. Hello, we are here at Heart Change Consciousness Inspired Activism as a Spiritual Path. I'm your host, Dr. Trish DeRocher, and with me today is Jess Pino Goodspeed. Um, And the topic for today is Confronting Food Insecurity, Dreaming Wellness Sovereignty um, with Jess, who is an anti-hunger advocate. So Jess, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thanks so much for having me. So I want to take some time just to let you know about some of Jess's amazing accomplishments and how it is that she comes to this work. Um, So Jess Pino Goodspeed is a licensed master social worker and has been a child nutrition program specialist at Hunger Solutions New York for almost 10 years. Jess holds a master's in social work with a a macro level perspective and view track, I think is the language, um, from SUNY Albany and a bachelor's in sociology and Spanish from Hartwick College. Um, As part of Jess's role at Hunger Solutions New York, which is a nonprofit that advocates for policy changes and legislation to improve access to and participation in federal nutrition assistance programs at local, state, and federal levels, Jess provides training on child nutrition programs, best practices to create hunger-free schools and communities with limited resources, and research on childhood hunger. Um, as well as being a connection for individuals, organizations, and agencies to increase awareness of support for and participation in federal nutrition programs. So just also, in addition to all of this, right, she wears many hats, analyzes policy to advocate for legislative and administrative improvements to increase low-income children's access to nutritional programs, and also performs statewide and local targeted outreach to promote strategies to expand access to healthy food for low-income children in schools. So outside of all of this amazing work, right, Jess is also doing other amazing work. So Jess is a mother of two young, vibrant girls, a group trainer and nutritional coach at Underwood Park CrossFit, which is a faith-based CrossFit gym in Fort Edward, New York. Um, She is a former member of the board of directors for Holding Our Own, a multiracial, multicultural foundation led by women of color, which was established to create an advanced feminist social and economic change in Albany, New York, and is deeply devoted to the nexus of spirituality and systemic social change. Jess was the 2020 recipient of the Post Stars 20 Under 20, uh, 20 Under 40 Award for being a young leader making significant tr- contributions to her community, and also the recipient of the 2019 Champion of Child Nutrition Award granted by the New York School Nutrition Association. So. These are some of Jess's accomplishments, Um, and I've invited her to speak with us on Heart Change Consciousness because in the time that I've known Jess, and I've known her for a very, very long time, she really embodies the approach to social justice work that we're talking about on this show. Um, And so Jess takes an intersectional macro level view to this work, um, but She also stays attentive to nuance and complexity and just like the messiness of being human, 
right? Um, and Jess always inspires me with the, just the depth of her level of passion and fierceness and how she balances that with, with joy and compassion. So Jess, I'm so excited that you're here um, and that we get to learn from you today. I'm so glad so, to. <laughs> <laughs> Mouthful, but thank you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So Jess, these are your accomplishments on paper, but I'd really love it if you can just share with us um, and our listeners just how confronting food insecurity and nutrition work became your life's work. Um, what led you down this path uh, of becoming an anti-hunger advocate and what for you is the connection between food, social justice, and spirituality? That's a lot to unpack, but I <laughs> am definitely, as you can tell, there's, there's so much, right? Um, so I should back way up. Um, the way that I happily fell into anti-hunger work through my master's program. So just to back up a little from there, um, I did my master, my bachelor's and all of that work was very deeply rooted in social justice. And so all of my work really culminated at the end of that about sovereignty in Latin America for indigenous communities, looking critically at volunteer opportunities that particularly college students do in Latin America and how that may conflict with the autonomy of indigenous communities and how some of these like volunteer good, good deed works can really conflict with how they see their communities develop and grow. And so that was the perspective that I was leaving my bachelor's program in 2008 at the same time of the height of the economic recession. So options were obviously limited for me coming out of college. Um, and I really ended up really lost in, in trying to figure out where can I pay my college loans, make a living, um, but also like do this really important work that was just a part of who I was. Um, so it was, it's actually funny in this conversation about spirituality and this work is that I connected with a family friend who is the faculty chair at the UAlbany School of Social Work. Um, and we were actually chatting at a Christmas Eve mass and he, and we were talking about my work in, in my bachelor's and he talked about um, how social work was rooted in social justice and the core value of social work was rooted in social justice. And I always had this conception that social work was very um, micro level focused, um, looking at dynamics of interpersonal behaviors and therapy and like that classic version of social work. Um, so this was a, a bright light of like what social work meant um, and what it was rooted to do and really actually change outcomes for oppressed people in our society and really like dissecting and pushing for change to focus on issues like poverty, like unemployment, all these social injustices that I was looking for to deal with in Latin America right here at my home, right? Um, and especially living in a community that's rural, that is very industry-based, lots of poverty, I would say hidden poverty. Um, and it really shined a light of, wow, I'm in the midst of so much inequity, so much injustice for people living in poverty, people really struggling that, you know, here was an opportunity right, right at my door to really like work on this. So anyway, that is what brought me into social work. Um, and my second year internship through my graduate program was with Hunger Solutions New York. So it was pretty serendipitous. It was really um, great to kind of fall into that work in that way. Um, but it quickly, once I started my internship there, became evident that like I belonged there. It was a nice, um, I don't know, the universe works in, in powerful ways. Mm -hmm. um, so that definitely is what led me down the path of anti-hunger work. Um, the other piece that you asked me about was like, what about this connection of food, uh, social justice, and particularly spirituality, right? So with food, right, we, we talk about in, in terms of social justice, like what is, what is at the core of social justice is people who are marginalized and without basic 
needs, right? Um, and food, while it blows my mind that this may be radical to some folks, but food is a basic human right. Um, people cannot exist in this world without having the proper nutrition. They need to grow, to thrive, to be at work, to be a productive member of society. Um, and so food I, is really, I always see it as like this, this groundwork, this base of what opportunity can be for people. It needs to be there, right? Um, so obviously that food piece really fit nicely into social justice. Where it comes into my spirituality, I really, in this, I really think about how can you do this work without some sense of spirituality, without some calling that this work needs to be done and it can't be left alone, right? It can't be, um, it can't be ignored. And so how can you not? And, and so I guess I've, I've been asked this so many times of like, how do you, how does someone like you come to social justice, come to, to this? And it was really ingrained in the way I was raised. Um, I was raised in a Catholic church. Um, and I think a lot of folks hear that and think of a traditional Catholic church, but I was fortunate enough to have, my father is from Latin America, he's Peruvian. Um, and my mother was there studying with him under Gustavo Gutierrez. He is a Peruvian philosopher, theologian, and a Dominican priest. And he's considered one of the founders of um, liberation theology. And so I was raised in this church that my family very much was very influenced by Latin American Catholicism, right? That Gutierrez called for an understanding of poverty, not that just that blessed are the poor um, notion that we get from the Bible, but, but calling on the church to look at the complexities of poverty, to look at economic resources, um, look at structures of oppression that are keeping people um, in poverty, and really challenging the church and challenging people in the Catholic faith that God's real work is rooted in economic, spiritual, and intellectual uh, liberation of oppressed people. And so not only now as an adult, looking back, it's, it's kind of one of those, of course, right? of course yeah. I work in social justice. <laughs> um, so that's, I think, I think definitely what has driven me towards this avenue of work and towards, um, you know, just always being a helping and then the helping profession um, and rooted in social justice. Yeah. Um, and, and full disclosure, I, uh, I grew up knowing Jess um, and also just part of how I come to this work was very influenced by Jess and Jess's family and having that alternative perspective of Catholicism and religion where true social justice and uh, liberation of, of everyone, right? Um, and, and that being kind of the impetus of doing spiritual work was just really illustrated and modeled it just at, at every level, right? Questions, thoughts, conversations around the kitchen table, right? Um, so Jess, I, I want to talk a little bit more about our immediate context. Um, and and I imagine that, you know, so you, you're coming from um, that particular upbringing, you're coming from your uh, particular track in your, your bachelor's, you come to do this macro level analysis in, in your social work program, and then, right, you get into a nonprofit, which is, it's a structure, right? And so whenever we're existing in a structure, it, it kind of limits or changes how we would do the work if we were coming to it as an autonomous being. And, and I'm speaking, you know, of from the place of being a professor for 15 years where there's, you know, how I would show up to do the work. And then there was this university structure that I had to kind of operate within. So I, I know that sometimes working for these structures can be challenging. Um, and I'm, I'm curious to know, um, you know, some of your perspectives on that and also how 
Um, your workout hunger solutions has been impacted by the immediacy of COVID um, and the economic impact that it's had on low income communities and especially BIPOC or black indigenous people of color communities. So, I mean, how, if in any way has COVID changed your work? What, if anything, has it exposed? Um, you know, what are some of the pieces that you kind of struggle with in this work? And, and what are some of the lessons that you've learned and continue to learn? That's great questions. Um, so backing up a little to, you know, working in a structure of a nonprofit, right? Um, that definitely comes with sacrifice, right? And, and Hunger Solutions was established very intentionally. Um, it rooted from New York state legislation that said that all eligible people should be connected to the benefits that they're entitled to. So that is, I think, I don't want to shadow that, right? I think the, the work that they do and the work that we do in the organization um, that focuses so much on program and policy is definitely necessary, but focuses solely on that, right? And focuses on alleviating hunger versus getting at the root causes of hunger. Mm -hmm. And so as a person who is driven by, by social justice, and that is really the compass that I work through. Um, it's definitely hard. It's definitely, um, it feels, it feels almost like this hamster wheel where you're trying to get people the resources they need, but rather never addressing the issues of why they're there, right? Um, so that has always, I think, internally been a struggle for me, but at the same time of this practical side, COVID has really highlighted why it's so important that I do this work at the same time, right? I can remember just before COVID, I was starting to feel burned out. I was, you know, coming up on, I was on nine years of working and I was like, what, how are we really moving the dial from the recession of 2008? It, people really didn't recover from that recession. The people who experienced hunger didn't see that bounce back. We did improve overall in connecting people with resources, but they were so just at the cusp, right, of, of food insecurity. Um, and so what COVID did was really shined a light that people are barely hanging on, right, to get themselves above this level of poverty that they can have enough food in the fridge for their kids. Um, and so with COVID, we had, we were, I, I feel like in hindsight, I was in this luxurious place of being able to look at program and policy and saying, oh, I wish we could do more on the systems level to change some work. But at the same time, when COVID happened, it just showed that families families rely so heavily on these programs. I particularly work on school meal programs. And mm -hmm. so when the shutdown happened in March of last year, it was family after family calling our office, which normally we don't get calls from families. It's mainly we're working with community-based organizations, with schools. We're much more on this um, macro level, but they saw our programs. They saw, they Googled us to see wow. how they can help with get help with food and people were calling us and leaving messages on my phone about, you know, where, where can I pick up food? I have four kids at home. And it was the, it was women calling me. And that really struck me and brought me back to a lot of my work in indigenous communities in Latin America, right? The women are at the forefront and at the, of the struggle, right? They're the ones facing this pain of not being able to feed your children. So it really brought my work back down to that level. Um, it has also brought back those questions, right? Of how fragile is our economic system for working families and how close is looming disaster? Um, it's, it really, just highlighted all those complexities. And also at the same time, you know, we're doing our work, we're pushing for policy changes to expedite resources to families. But at 
the, at the same time, your heart is hurting, like hearing these stories when you're trying to strategize how to get the right votes and hearing like the, for me, it was just the personal pain of trying to find program and policy, policy solutions and seeing this red tape and bureaucracy literally get in the way of humanity, of feeding people, of making sure that mothers, because mothers are the ones who are skipping their meals so their kids can go to bed without empty bellies, are bearing the weight of, of this bureaucracy, right? Um, so that's, that this past year has been probably one of the most profound years in this work for me. Um, it's, it's where you keep questioning of like, what are we doing here with these programs? But also, what, what are we doing? But why we can't ever step away, right? Um, I think, and what I mean by that is like, what are we doing? Is this is, so many times I think like, this is just a Band-Aid to a much broader issue. And we need to be working on this broader issue. But at the same time, right? Like people need this basic necessity. It can't wait. There's right. such urgency. Yeah. And I think that's something that comes up in a lot of social justice dialogue too, right? The, how do we hold the, the micro and the macro, right, together? Because yes, we need to be thinking about systemic change and in the meantime, if we're not focusing on these micro level, immediate, practical daily issues, right? What, you know, how do we, how do we not pay attention to that? Um, and I, and I think so much about one of, one of my lessons on this path has been, there's so many people doing the work and, um, when we're really honest with ourselves about like, well, you know, what, what motivates me? What is my gift? What can I do from where I'm at? That's kind of what allows us to dive really into our particular gifts um, and trust that other people have their particular callings and gifts. And so if we're over here focusing on this, also knowing that there's a network of people doing that other work, right? I'm not sure if that's something you think about at all. Yeah, for, for sure. Um, and I think if you're going to look at like, what are, what's the silver lining here, right? Seeing so many different, we've worked so long in silos that the anti-hunger folks are over here and folks working to increase the minimum wage over here and folks working on looking at racial disparities and hunger and poverty and how black and brown babies experience hunger and food insecurity at 10 times higher rates and that, you know, that impact on, on their, on their mental health, on their economic and their academic achievement, all these pieces, right. We were all working in these silos and I feel like COVID really helped break down some silos to get folks talking together in working on policy solutions together to look more broadly at these issues, right? And to look at how they're all inter interconnected. And, and I think also by survival, when we were looking at states and, and localities not getting any aid, we all had to pool our resources. We all, all many nonprofits across New York State stopped getting paid by, by the government. Yeah. Um, and so it was just this necessity, right? To, to keep working together and to, not look at hunger in just a, in one silo. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, um, Vandana Shiva, um, is, I, I, she's a food rights activist, but so many other things, her political beliefs are earth democracy. And she really sees food as like the social issue and ecological issue that impacts everyone that impacts the planet. So even thinking about food as like, as the nexus that when we're confronting, um, food sovereignty, we're, we're working across so many, um, social structures and so many social differences. So we are about to take a break, um, but when we come back, Jess is going to talk with us a little bit more about 
her other work outside of hunger solutions, um, her work as a nutritional coach and how motherhood and spirituality really factor into all of this work. So um, make sure that you come back to Heart Change Consciousness after the break to hear more uh, about Jess's amazing work in this world. It's your turn to reclaim your life. Experience the unmitigated joy of breathing life into your own passions, into your own purpose, with me, Life Coach Ricky Schwartz, at MyTurnLifeCoaching.com. In the meantime, tune into my show, My Turn Life Coaching, live every second and fourth Wednesday at 12 p.m. Pacific Time on TransformationTalkRadio.com. The finder of lost things. Exploring your superpowers of trust, healing, and transformation with me, Hannah Belton. When my brother Christian went missing, I completely denied my grief. We can either transform and transition, or we can stay stagnant. This podcast will uncover the process that Christian and I went on to find the lost things him and to find the parts of me that were missing and there's things that are missing in you that prevent you from letting go whether it's a person a dream a lifestyle that process of trusting and finding the lost pieces and and integrating them that's where you get your sustainable transition that will carry on tune in every monday at 9am pacific on transformationtalkradio.com you can find me at hannahvelton.online. Get empowered. Transformation Talk Radio. Juggling life's relentless demands can leave us unbalanced and restless. Do you feel stuck in the overwhelm? Diane McClay is a personal empowerment coach, author, and compassionate storyteller on a mission to boost you into balance and help you move forward with passion and purpose. Get unstuck with Diane on The Diane McClay Show every second and fourth Friday at 1.30 p.m. Pacific on TransformationTalkRadio.com. For more information about Diane, visit DianeMcClay.com. Can't get enough of I Have Soul Radio? Join Psychic Medium Jamie every Thursday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern on Transformation Talk Radio. Take a deeper look at the raw side of spirit. Nothing is off limits. Connect with lost loved ones and explore these vulnerable subjects with the compassionate guidance of Psychic Medium Jamie. You are not alone. Eye of Soul, Thursdays at 5 p.m. Pacific, only on TransformationTalkRadio.com. Hello, and thank you for coming back to Heart Change Consciousness, Inspired Activism as a Spiritual Path. And I am here as your host, Dr. Trish DeRocher, and I'm here today with Jess Pino Goodspeed, um, who is an anti-hunger advocate at Hunger Solutions New York. Um, so before we get back into our conversation, I just want to make sure that you know where to find my services. So my website is transformativeconsciousness.com. That's transformativeconsciousness.com. Um, and I have an upcoming workshop on March 27th from 1 p.m. to 3.30 p.m. Um, Eastern time through Sangha Studio, which is a nonprofit-based uh, yoga studio in Burlington, Vermont. And it's Whiteness 101, an anti-racism workshop for white-bodied yogis. So this workshop is specifically for white-bodied people who want to be doing anti-racism work and don't know how. Maybe you don't understand the language. Maybe uh, you have a lot of feelings in your body about it. Um, and so this workshop is going to be talking about some basic language principles. What do we mean by white supremacy? What do we mean by white bodied people? What do we mean by whiteness, right? What is whiteness? Um, what do we mean by um, institutional racism? So we'll be unpacking some of this language. You don't need to know anything, right? That's what this workshop is for. Um, and we won't just be talking about it. We'll actually be getting into our bodies and talking about triggers and um, kind of all of those fear responses that can come up when we talk about race, because this is just a fact. We can't just do this work with our minds. It's also in our bodies. Um, and so we'll be 
talking a little bit more about that. We'll be doing some practices. There will be some time for discussion, Q&A, journaling prompts. And again, this is March 27th from 1 p.m. to 3.30 p.m. Um, through Zoom. Uh, and if you go to my website, transformativeconsciousness.com, you can find this under events and programs there. So Jess, um, I want to talk more about your other hats and roles in your life. Um, as a nutritional coach at Underwood Park CrossFit, um, and uh, I'm also thinking about one of the things, and we had a conversation prepping for this, you know, like trying to figure out like, you know, what, what do, how do we want to frame this? What do we want to talk about? And you said something that was really profound. And, um, and I just wanted to, to kind of reflect that back to you and hear you unpack it a little bit more. So you said one piece of social justice work is the work and it's also who I am, both personally and professionally. Um, and so Jess, I'd love to hear more about what this means to you and what this looks like, looks like in your life as a nutritional coach, as a partner, as a mom, as a spiritual being. Um, and what are these other pieces in your life work? How do they embody your commitment to social justice? Are they, are they separate? Are they intertwined? Are they just different expressions? Um, and just, you know, how does spirituality guide you um, in, in all of your, your human work? Awesome. Um, so we'll start with what I talked about with social justice. So we, we did talk in the first part here about the struggle of just alleviating hunger versus not getting to the root cause. And so to say that I don't do social justice work because I'm not, because I get in this trap of my own brain of like, maybe I'm not working towards social justice if I'm not eradicating systems of oppression, but someone has to do the work and that is social justice work. And so I often, right in, in my brain, in my relationships with my friends like you, Trish, um, talking through what is my social justice work. And that's where I really, it's, it's in that questioning, right? Where I'm like, no, this is who I am. This is who, what drives my decisions on how to mother, on how to be a partner, on how to coach people with nutrition, how to change programs and policies based on hunger. That's my compass. Social justice is my compass. And if I didn't have that, you know, I think it would be fragmented work, right? I think that's what makes it intertwined. And, and I heard you say, like, is it intertwined? Of course, it's intertwined. Everything is connected. Um, and so, and, and I have to say, it, that's my spirituality talking, right? That, you know, it's not... Right. It's not, not, no work is singular. Right. Um, and certainly you can, you can help people, but thinking of how you're helping people and the systems that are influencing why they're in the position that they're in and why they're in the space that they're in and why am I working with them? Why am I touching them in their lives? So this is a little, so I'm, the other hat that I wear, you're talking about my life as a nutrition coach at Utterwood Park CrossFit. So um, movement is a big part of my practice for just helping all that's in my body, <laughs> um, you know, doing anti-hunger work and feeling, I very much feel the pain of the, like the people who call me um, and the work that I do. And also the, the nutrition work that I do, right? Um, so my movement is a really big part. And so CrossFit is something that I found um, probably about five, five years ago now. Um, and it has turned into this adventure of becoming a nutrition coach in this last year. Um, I have to say probably the most exciting part about being a nutrition coach and 
interestingly, like helping myself find how this is actually connected. It does feel like I'm working at two ends of the spectrum, right? Where people who are lacking basic resources, let's, to be frank, are are in positions of privilege and can look at um, and and have choices and have autonomy about their food. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the same time, do they? right? And, and thinking through people who want to improve their lives through improving their nutrition, right? And so weight loss sometimes is often a goal for people. Um, but I, for me, the most exciting piece of this work is women liberating their bodies f- from diet culture, from this larger multi-billion dollar corporations that tell women to shrink themselves, to be worthy of love, of connection, to to not take up space, to be demure and quiet and small, right? Like that is very, a real, real thing that women feel starting at like five or six years old, right? To not be too big. Um, So it's this other piece of like, what really fires me up about nutrition coaching is what happens when women liberate themselves from that? What happens when they start to feel empowered to take up space? Um, and right, and and you don't your your life doesn't have to be this hustle on a diet, um, and that it's more, and that um, sovereignty and autonomy from all of that is revolutionary, right? Um, so so helping people revolutionize their own lives in that way. Um, It's definitely separate, I think, from my anti-hunger work, but also really gets at living a life around food that that involves dignity, right? That involves compassion. Um, Yeah. And I, and it's, it's, I feel to me, spirituality is like just this obvious undertone, right? It's this obvious piece that you know, of course, of course we want to liberate people from, from all these systems that are not allowing them to live their most full life, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So I think that's how really that work embodies some social justice work. And I, I definitely am coming from a much different place than other nutrition coaches. Um, I'm very frank with my clients when they start with me about, you know, my approach and where I'm at. Um, and sometimes it's not the right fit for people, but I'm not for everyone. So, um, <laughs> it works, it works out. Um, but yeah, that's, that's a little bit, I think, I'm not sure if I got to all the pieces of your question. Yeah. I, well, and I'm also thinking just about my relationship with food and, and how that's changed. Um, I just finished a, a 200 Ayurveda immersion and after leaving academia, I took a year where I was like, you know what? I need to nourish my body. Like for years, I was just going, going, going and not really thinking about having a a body or food was an afterthought. Um, Mm -hmm. And to to come to a place to think about food as nourishment and also food as sacred, right? Like like our, our bodies are sacred and what happens when we shift how we are nourishing our bodies, what we're putting in our bodies, how we're eating, how we're sharing meals with people, right? Um, and that that level of intentionality. So I think there's so many pieces to it. There's there's the gender dimension. And I, I'm thinking about um, Sonia Renee Taylor's work, The Body is Not an Apology. Um, and she's talking about radical self-love. And yes, like taking up space, right? Like women are so often... Uh, you know, I mean, literally taught to shrink ourselves and, you know, what does it, it mean if we step away and just think about, but I'm allowed to take up space. I'm allowed to nourish myself. Right. Um, so also from that perspective, and I know you, you follow a lot of people, um, you have lots of, of thoughts about this. And so I'm wondering if you could actually share with us a little bit more about what your, um, 
what your approach is and why you aren't for everyone. I would love to hear more about that. Yeah. Um, so I get a lot in this space. I get a lot of, um, inspiration from Chrissy King. She is a writer, very vocal about social justice. And she talks about this as a woman of color, um, and talks about the fitness industry, talks about the diet industry as a woman, as a woman of color, Um, And she really is trademarked, really, I want to say, because it is hers, um, this notion of taking up space um, and empowering future generations of women to take up space, and especially women of color, to talk about that in, in that sense. And so how much racism is deeply rooted in diet culture um, you talked about nourishing our bodies, right? And and when diet culture, specifically diet culture, like tells us certain foods are bad and certain foods are, and, and adding morality to food, right? Mm. There's that piece, but then it's tied to culture, right? Um, as a as a woman from, with family from Latin America, right? Hearing that white rice is not good and that that that's erasing a piece of my culture. It's erasing a piece of who I am. And to, so to then just to simplify it to a carbohydrate that increases your blood sugar, that erases my history and my story, right? So looking at it through that lens and challenging and questioning what messages, right, are, are we being told? And what stories are we ta- teaching our children? right? Um, It's definitely been highlighted for me in terms of parenting and really changing the dialogue. Because as progressive as my parents were, right, there was still good food and bad food. There was still um, this dynamic, right, that that just was normal. But instead, I really worked to teach my children to like, listen to their bodies. When does their body say they're full? What, you know, what is drawing them on their plate, right? And allowing them trust in themselves at that age, right? Trust that they know what their body needs. Of course, I'm filling their plates with good stuff, but um, not pushing, finish your vegetables, not pushing, finish your meat, right? You are an autonomous being, you know, we are born with these powers in ourselves to know how to nourish ourselves. Babies know what to do, right? Um, So that's a lot about intuitive eating. So that's something that's really come up and it has been whitewashed, I think in some ways. Um, But um, intuitive eating, I think if if folks are interested in that type of thing, um, that's really kind of that practice is getting back in touch with your your, um, natural hunger cues and getting back in touch with um, it with yourself and kind of erasing the influence of diet culture and then looking at it through a racial and equity lens. Chrissy King is definitely the resource to go to on that. She is amazing and a delight to read anything she writes. Awesome. Thank you so much for, for sharing that. And, you know, when you're talking about that, I'm thinking about just how, I mean, years ago I, I taught, um, uh, a feminist food studies course. And we were talking about, you know, just the colonization of food and, and these food narratives. And, mm. um, you know, especially if uh, thinking about whiteness, if, if whiteness is a cultural logic, right. In many ways, that is like the erasure of history, right. Then as we're thinking about food sovereignty and wellness sovereignty, just the importance of history, of thinking about, you know, what, um, what is our ancestry? What is, um, the cultural upbringing and the stories around the food and how do we kind of heal those, our connections with food, thinking about, you know, both ancestral, but also where we are now, like, where is this food on our plate coming from? right? Like what are the stories? What are the stories of the workers? Like how did it end up on our plates? Right? Like I think in, in some ways, wellness sovereignty and food sovereignty is also connected to that thinking about, you know, all of the steps I I would always say to my, my college students in the classroom, like, you know, what is allowing us to be here in the college classroom, just talking about food right now, 
food workers, right? And, and, you know, who, who is producing the food? What are the conditions? We would do like a little, um, well, it wasn't, it wasn't little. I think that it was, it actually ended up being a pretty profound experience for a lot of students, but one of their assignments was to bring in something that they made and they had to think about like, where were the ingredients originating from? How much did it cost to like make this? So, you know, like, would it be affordable? Um, thinking about like uh, different dietary restrictions, who could eat the food and thinking about food and, and food making as a form of praxis too, right? And, and thinking about all of these multiple pieces. And in that, um, I framed it out as the quinoa debates and it was about quinoa at the time, but I think that it, it happens in different forms. And so, you know, quinoa, which, which is a, a, a Peruvian like staple food, right. Mm -hmm. Was, um, all of a sudden like deemed this super food in the global North. And, you know, so the, the prices started going up and then all of a sudden as a result of like the wellness industry being like, this is, you know, such a, a high um, nutritional food, you know, Peruvian people who had grown up as like the staple crop couldn't afford to eat quinoa anymore, right? So as you're talking about these pieces, I'm, I'm thinking about that. I'm not sure if you have, I don't know, any thoughts that have kind of popped up on that. It's so funny that you bring that up because literally the last time I was in Peru was probably, it must've been seven or eight years ago now. Um, my aunt and I had this exact conversation. She's like, I can't buy a quarter kilo of quinoa. It's my, it's my monthly salary. Yeah. I'm like, holy smokes. Um, so, so the fact that you bring up that story is just mind blowing to me right now. Um, but, but also it, it brings me to my anti-hunger work, right? It, to hear there is, so I live in, in the area I live is fairly conservative, right? So there's a lot of rhetoric around who's worthy of food stamps, right? We used to call it food stamps. It's called SNAP now, but who's worthy of those benefits? What do they have in their grocery carts? What are people buying? Should they, should they buy soda? Should they buy? And, and getting at this, getting at this whole prejudice, right? Against people who have limited resources, right? That's what I really drew out of, of what you were talking about was, how can we, how can we criticize and look at some of these pieces without looking at the nuance there, right? How can, how can we not, and even folks who even, and I'm talking about like elected officials who support these programs, but really the, the levels of which they're giving people benefits, I can't, don't quote me on how many, it is less than a few dollars a day that you have to feed your kids on with, with some of these benefits programs, right? So if you're, you're getting benefits to buy groceries, you have to be savvy and figure out what, how the cheapest way to make that stretch to the end of the month. And then you're supplementing that with school meals, right? And so really gets back to what I mentioned before with, with COVID and how families were calling me because schools shut down and they were relying up to almost three meals a day five days a week for their kids in those situations. So then those limited food budgets that they had were stretched even thinner. Right. So to think of that and, and see that play out has been, has been hard to see and, and also forces us to keep our eyes on looking at the complexities of this, right. Um, and questioning and, you know, thinking critically about, you know, what's really happening. And I, I know recently in Vermont, there's been um, conversations on, you know, what do we do after COVID? What are the lessons that we've learned? And do we make all meals free for children at school indefinitely? Like, I think that's a conversation that um, Vermont is having right now. 
So Jess, we, we are running out of time. Um, I wish we weren't because I always love our conversations and the twists and turns that they take. Um, so I'm wondering if, if you can just, you know, share with us some closing thoughts, um, some things that you've learned that maybe you wish like your younger self had known some, some takeaways for listeners, just, um, wisdom and, and, um, you know, perspectives to kind of contemplate on and, you know, any dreams that you have about where, where you want to go with your wellness and food sovereignty work that you, that you haven't done yet. <laughs> awesome. So I think the my biggest takeaway, um, and I think what I would want folks to know, especially if you're not in this work already or newly coming to this work is to not feel discouraged that um, I think I had a very simple idea of what social justice work would be. Um, and given the complexity of social justice, I think that seems naive, but um, this year, especially at, with COVID, with social unrest, um, calling out racism and white supremacy and police brutality, it has helped me realize how nuanced this work is and how much just being, just doing the work is so important. Um, it's so easy to get caught up in and, and I don't want to belittle it, but to get caught up in the enormity of all that, right? And in, to really just be overwhelmed by what it takes to eradicate poverty, what it takes to, to break down systems of oppression, right? But doing the work each day gives us a deeper understanding and helps us to look critically at everything, how I tell my kids to eat their meals to how I'm working with a woman who calls me who can't feed their kids meals, right? How you can look at where systems of oppression can come everywhere, right? And the best we can do is what's in front of us, right? And just keep moving along. Um, it's so easy to get overwhelmed by that, but to continue to be committed to recognizing oppression, but also being positive that you're not playing the role to perpetuate it, right? And question it and, and being intentional about teaching our children and doing our work through that lens. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Paulo Ferrer always talks about how, you know, part of the role of the cultural worker is to just continue to check ourselves constantly, but you know, also to continue showing up. The point isn't to just think about things without taking action. It's not just doing things without reflecting. It's that constant, you know, um, self-reflection. So Jess, thank you so much for being here with us today. Uh, I always learn from you. I, I'm always grateful to share space with you. Um, again, you can check out my website, learn more about my work at transformativeconsciousness.com. That's transformativeconsciousness.com. Um, and I'll be with you next month again at Heart Change Consciousness. Bye for now. Thank you for tuning in to Heart Change Consciousness on transformationtalkradio.com with me, Dr. Trish DeRocher. Make sure to come back next time so we can continue to awaken your soul purpose. Look forward to more conversations with your favorite authors, changemakers, influencers, activists, and many more who practice inspired spiritual activism and transform vulnerabilities into sources of strength. For more information about me and transformative consciousness coaching, visit transformativeconsciousness.com. That's transformativeconsciousness.com. This was Heart Change Consciousness on TransformationTalkRadio.com.